today, friends, as we come to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we are in an area now, the crucifixion of Christ, where very candidly, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's all profitable. But this that describes the death and resurrection of Christ has particular meaning for us today. And we close the last chapter with Jesus in the hands of his enemies. His own were scattered. One has betrayed him. Another has denied him. And it's the night of sin. In two different ways. Sin is trying to destroy him. And he is doing something about sin. For he's dying for your sin and my sin. And I suppose that it could be said that the cross is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith for that reason. It is at once the greatest tragedy of the ages and the most glorious victory of earth and heaven. Therefore, as we come to this chapter, we should not come with a feeling of defeat or sympathy for the sufferer. We should walk, I think, softly and reverently through these scenes with a heart welling up to God in thanksgiving for providing so great salvation. And the tragic note, I think, is inescapable in these scenes with the cruel injustice and bitter suffering inflicted upon the Lord Jesus. You will recall that Clovis, the barbarian, exclaimed when he first heard the gospel read to him. He said, if I'd only been there with my soldiers. Well, it's not our sympathy that the Son of God wants. It's our faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And he wants the faith of your heart, not the sympathy of your heart. Now, I have said before, I repeat it again today, Mark is the gospel of action. And this 15th chapter of Mark sets forth the supreme nature of the action. The crucifixion is the climactic point and the crowning event of this section. It is the crucifixion toward which all creation and the purposes of God were moving from out eternity. For he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now the gospel is translated into action. Paul could say later on, I've delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the gospel is what he did. It's not what God's asking you to do. It's his action, not your action or mine today, because you and I are in no position to do anything that would be acceptable to God. Your righteousness and my righteousness is not acceptable for salvation. God provides that righteousness in Christ. He delivered for our offenses 
raised for our justification or our righteousness. Now, in this chapter, we see Jesus first carried before Pilate, verses 1 and 6. Then Jesus condemned and Barabbas released, verses 7 through 15. Then Jesus crowned with thorns, verses 16 through 23. And then Jesus crucified, verses 24 to 41. And then finally, 42 to 47, Jesus committed to Joseph and put in his new tomb. Now let's get into the chapter. I'm reading at verse 1, Mark 15. And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, the reason that they did that was this, that the Sanhedrin had already condemned Jesus to die, but they could not carry out the execution. Only Rome could do that. Therefore, this body had to appeal to the Roman court for the execution of the death penalty. Now, that charge which they had brought against him at the Sanhedrin, that would not stand up before Pilate. And so they met early the next morning to formulate charges that would stand up before the Roman court and to make legal the illegal action of the night before. Now, will you notice verse 2? And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. You see, Pilate was the Roman governor in Jerusalem at this time. And when I say in Jerusalem, he just happened to be in Jerusalem. And he didn't just really happen to be there. He really stayed down at Caesarea. He liked that place. It was on the seacoast, and it was a delightful climate. He didn't like Jerusalem, and he only came up there at feast times to keep down any riots. The Roman government just didn't permit riots and didn't permit protest marches and that type of thing. And that's the reason that they stood for about a thousand years as a great world empire. I think that present-day nations need to take note. Now, will you notice, he was a politician, and expediency rather than Roman justice was the motivating force in this man's life. And he actually sought to release Jesus, frankly, if you'll notice that, but he couldn't get the cooperation of Jesus as he wanted it. And yet at the same time, of course, he wanted to please the religious rulers, and he'd have to have the cooperation of the Lord Jesus. I think Pilate is a typical example of a cheap politician who is unloosed from the noble moorings of honesty and integrity and carries water on both shoulders, seeking to compromise and to try to please all sides. And when you do that, you please no one. Now, I'm reading verse 2. Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. Art you right? And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things 
they witness against thee. And Pilate was amazed and shocked to have a prisoner before him who would not defend himself. I imagine that other prisoners went to great length to defend themselves. But this prisoner was different. He didn't defend himself, and he won't know why. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. Now when we get to the Gospel of John, you'll find out that there was a great deal of interplay back and forth between Pilate and the religious rulers as Pilate actually sought to deliver Jesus. And he took him on the inside, you remember, and talked to him. Then he came back out and then took him in again, hoping to get his cooperation. But he found out that he had to stand on his own two feet and make a decision relative to Jesus Christ. And that's what every man has to do, and every woman for that matter. Now, this man thought he would get off the hook, of course, by releasing a prisoner. And this man just couldn't believe that anyone would ask for Barabbas to be delivered and for Jesus to be crucified. And he really thought he had a solution to the dilemma that he found himself in. I'm reading now at verse 7, "...and there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection." Now, here is a man guilty of murder, guilty of leading an insurrection. And he was the chief prisoner at that time. And he was to be crucified along with the others. I think the Lord Jesus actually was crucified on Barabbas' cross. Now, Pilate answered them, saying, "'Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews?' For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Now, this is actually a very remarkable and an unheard of thing that's taking place. The thing was evident, I think, to Pilate that the charges brought against Jesus were false. And here he had on his hands this prisoner that was an outstanding criminal. And he makes the comparison between Jesus and Barabbas. And he thought, well, for certain these men wouldn't dare ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. But he just didn't know, even religion, what depths it can sink. And so he was so shocked that when they did ask for Barabbas to be released, of all things, he's the judge, and he's so startled that he asks this question here in desperation, "'What shall I do with Jesus?' Is called the Christ. And the mob was instructed to demand that Jesus be crucified. And this, my friend, is mob rule with a vengeance. Listen to this. 
And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And no mob is prepared to reason or to use its head or to use good judgment. All they could do is just cry out, Crucify him. Now, as we move down into this section, notice, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, Pilate obviously was a weak, vacillating politician. And here he yields to the cry of the mob, and he delivered the Lord Jesus to be crucified. Roman justice certainly went awry here. An innocent man is to die. But wait just a moment. He's to take my place, and I'm not innocent. And he's to take your place also. Now we're told here that the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. Now when any criminal was to be crucified... He was turned over to these soldiers, and they were a brutal lot to do with as they pleased. And they, of course, humiliated prisoners. They persecuted them. They tortured them. They made them a plaything for sadistic appetites. And that is the thing they do with the Lord Jesus. I've suggested before in the Gospel of Matthew, they played a game, a Roman game called hot hand. They'd all stick their fists up in the face of Jesus. Then they'd blindfold him, and then they would all hit him but one. And believe me, they hit him. They beat his face into a pulp. I don't think he looked like a man. And of course, when they take the blindfold off, he had to pick out the fist that didn't hit him. And he never could pick out the right one. No prisoner ever picked out the right one. Even if he did, it wouldn't be the right one, because they're going to play the game again. And I think they actually beat the Lord Jesus' face into a pulp and probably beat him into practical unconsciousness. And that's the reason we're told here that they had to get this man, Simon the Cyrenian, to carry his cross. Our Lord was 33 years old. I'm confident he was muscular. He'd walked up and down that country and he'd been a carpenter, and he'd been able to drive the money changers out, and he was muscular, but they had beat him, friends. They had beat him into a pulp. Now will you notice in verse 24, and when they had crucified him, and actually it could be better translated here, and after they crucified him. Because the crucifixion, no gospel writer records the details of it. They just give us incidents around the crucifixion. It was so horrible that the Spirit of God, as it were, drew the veil and said, there's nothing here to satisfy a sadistic curiosity. There's nothing here an idle mind is to occupy itself with. And it's too horrible. And we're told that after they crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. After they got him on the cross, that was over with. He was hanging there. And we're told it was the third hour when they crucified him, and they put the superscription above him, 
I get to John, I'll call attention to that. You have to put all the gospel writers together to get the full superscription. And this is another evidence of the fact that no gospel writers intending to give you the whole story. Now, they crucified, we're told here, verse 27, two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And that was done, Mark says, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe, and they that were crucified with him reviled him. Now note verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And then at the ninth hour we are told that Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I want you to notice this here because actually Mark gives us the crucifixion by the clock. On the third hour, he was put on the cross. And at the sixth hour, that is at 12 noon, darkness came down. Instead of right at high noon, why darkness came down on the cross. Then from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, or three o'clock in the afternoon, it was darkness. Now, will you notice this? In the first three hours, it was from 9 to 12. And from the second three hours, 12 to 3. He was on the cross six hours. Now, in those first three hours, there was physical light. In the last three hours, there was physical darkness. But in those first three hours, it was spiritual darkness. And in the last three hours, it was spiritual light. Why? Well, because in the first three hours, man did his worst. You see they crucified him. You see that he's being reviled there even by those that were hanging with him on the cross. In fact, both thieves at first. And then the enemy down beneath, marching around, wagging their heads and ridiculing him. Everything is man-made in that first three hours. Man is doing his work, and man's doing his worst. Now, in the last three hours, in that time of physical darkness, when it was actually spiritual light, God was working. In those first three hours, he's suffering at the hands of man. And in the last three hours, he's suffering for man. And in those first three hours, he's dying because of sin. In the last three hours, he's dying for the sin of the world. You see, sin was doing all it could to destroy him in the first three hours. In the last three hours, he is making his soul an offering for sin. So that you have crucifixion by the clock, and in those last three hours, 
He is paying for the sins of the world. And it's during this period that he was made sin for us. He became sin for us. He was forsaken of God. Yet even at that time, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. What a paradox we have here. And the crowd misunderstood what he said. They probably thought that he said Elijah because of the similarity of the words. And they asked, well, let's see whether Elijah will come. And you wonder whether they didn't halfway suspect that he was the Messiah. I think there was something in the human heart that did tell them this was the Messiah. And they give him now wine to quench his thirst. This is not the drug that they gave him later on. We are told in Psalm 69:21, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. They gave him one to deaden the pain. They gave him this as a drink, and that was the reason that it was given to him. Now, we find him here then crying out during this particular period here. And when he cried out like that, while there were those that stood there, they said, he's calling a lights. And I think they thought he might be the Messiah. And they ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, put it on reed, and they gave him to drink, saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. Now this final statement, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, or dismissed his spirit. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now this, I think, was evidently witnessed by many priests because it was three o'clock in the afternoon and that was the time of the evening sacrifice, and they were serving in the temple at that very moment. And this certainly had some effect upon them. At any rate, we note later on that many of the priests came to a saving knowledge of Christ. For instance, I read Acts 6, 7, "...and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's the end of the quotation. And friends, this reveals that many of the priests believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have every reason to believe that some of them were those that were serving in the temple at that time. Now, the fact that the very moment that he gave up the ghosts why the veil was rent in twain is not accidental by any means, and it's not given to us that way. Now, when he gave up the ghost, and notice that's the way that he died, he didn't die because the bodily organs refused to function. He deliberately and definitely surrendered up his spirit. He could not die until he gave up his spirit. And he died differently, of course, than any of us. I've been in the presence of quite a few people that died. And these folk, I've always noticed there's what is called a death rattle. And that means the last thing we do is we try to draw in our breath. That's the one thing we want. 
is that final breath. He didn't do it. He dismissed his spirit. And that certainly made his death different in that sense. Now, when he did that, at that very instant, the veil was rent in twain. Now, that veil speaks of the humanity of Christ. We'll be going back to Leviticus, and I'll be mentioning the tabernacle because the book of Leviticus has to do with the service in the tabernacle. And that veil, you'll recall, that speaks of the humanity of Christ, and the message is tremendous, and it's this. You see, the humanity of Christ, or the life of Christ, shuts us out from God. And the minute he died, the veil was rent. It's his death that brings us to God, not his life, friends. I have a book on the tabernacle in which I go into detail on that. We offered it in Exodus, but you can order it. It deals with this and the worship in the tabernacle and the articles of furniture and especially the veil. Now, let me move on at verse 39. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I believe that this was the confession of faith of the centurion. And this is as far as he possibly could go at this time. He couldn't have said anything that would have revealed his faith more than this. He acknowledged that Jesus was God's Son. He acknowledged who he was and certainly what he was doing. I do not believe that this man had all the details of theology. This man had never read Thornwell's theology or Strong's theology, and he'd never read any of my books. But this man knew enough to take his place beneath the cross of Christ. And you know that's all God's ever asked any sinner to do, to come in faith to him. And that's all this man's doing. And you must remember he was a pagan Roman, and he had the cruel job of crucifying men. And certainly he's made very tender at this time. Now we're told that there were these women that were present. It's interesting to note the women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb, by the way. And these stood afar off. They remained faithful. They were the ones that were faithful to the very end. His disciples and apostles, they were scattered at this time. Now, there are other women, of course, that are not named here at all. It says, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Verse 42, And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate, and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he'd been any while dead. And when he knew of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. Now, this is something that's 
quite interesting to note in just passing over this. Joseph of Arimathea was a little-known follower of Jesus. He actually had charge of the burial, and he had the courage to step out in the open here. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And this man had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. And he was of Arimathea, a city of that land. He also was waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man now steps out as a follower of the Lord Jesus when the apostles are scattered, gone undercover, and he begged the body of Jesus. Now, we are told here that Pilate marveled that he was so soon dead. And the reason is that customarily a person who was crucified would linger alive on a cross sometimes for days. His life just gradually expired. It was a cruel and inhuman mode of torture. And this is the reason that Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead and he made special inquiry. Jesus gave up the ghost. This is important to see. And in the last hours of dying, a prisoner on the cross had his legs broken to hasten his death. But Jesus was already dead, and it was not necessary to break his legs. And then you know that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Not a bone of his body would be broken. Now, Pilate, we're told, gave the body to Joseph. And it's interesting to note that there are two words used for the body in this connection. Joseph asked for the body. That's the soma. And Pilate gave him the potoma. And that's another Greek word. The first speaks of the total personality, and it's a word of care and tenderness. But the word used when Pilate gave the body just means the corpse or a carcass, you see. It's a different viewpoint and attitude toward death and toward the bodies of those that are dead. The word that when Joseph went in, he asked for the body, but it was a word of tenderness. He wanted Jesus. And all Pilate did, he just gave him a carcass. What a difference it is. Only the Lord Jesus, friends, can put any value on you. You and I are not worth very much. And he paid a tremendous price for our redemption and even our bodies are to be redeemed. And we groan within these bodies, but there's a day coming when our bodies will be redeemed. This is just a little insight here. Now, will you notice Joseph is called here a rich man, and he put away the body tenderly in his new tomb, and he rolled a stone there, and he bought the fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a sepulcher that was hewn out of a rock, rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. Now, that door was sealed. That rock was sealed by the Roman soldiers later on. And he was the one that rolled the stone there. And the soldiers sealed it. And the only mourners there were the women. They were with him to the very, very end. God bless the women. Notice verse 47, And Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. Now in chapter 16, we come to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. 
and the bodily resurrection of Jesus is one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. It's the very heart of the primitive gospel. Every sermon preached in the book of Acts is a message on the resurrection. Every speaker got to this subject, and the early church dwelt upon it constantly. And unfortunately, we only have one Easter sermon a year. He's risen. That's the thrilling message which electrified a lethargic and sinful generation in the Roman Empire, turned them upside down, wrong side out and right side up, and they went out to tell the world about it. There'd be hope today if the church would preach this truth with much assurance, let me tell you. Now, I want you to notice here that this chapter has been one under severe criticism by the higher critics, and very candidly, rightly so. And the only reason I'm going to mention this is because of the fact that there'll be some will say, well, doesn't he know the textual problem that is here because he's passing over it? Well, I'll say to you, I know that it's here. From verses 9 through 20 have been called and questioned by the textual scholars of both the conservative and the liberal groups, Westcott and Hort. For instance, they omit it from their Greek text. They do include it in smaller type, and Nestle follows the same procedure by separating it from the regular text. And some, of course, the liberal wing omits it altogether. Now, the better manuscripts omitted entirely. And frankly, the manuscript Olive, which is one of our best, and the Vatican manuscripts, they end Mark's gospel at verse 8 of chapter 16. Now, I'm not going into this problem of New Testament introduction. That's not our purpose in studying the Bible like this. I call attention to it just for one reason, to let you know we know it's there in order that I might say that I treat all of the chapter 16 as the Word of God. Now, without any further ado, let's move into this chapter. We have first the arrival of the women at the empty tomb in the first four verses. Then the announcement of the angel that Jesus had risen, verses 5 through 8. Then the appearances of Jesus, verse 9 through 18. And then the ascension of Jesus, verses 19 to 20. We'll hit high points here. And when the Sabbath was passed, that is now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. They never were able to anoint him, I'll tell you. It was not Mary of Bethany who wasted her ointment. It's these women that did, because he was risen. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Now, the Sabbath had ended at sundown on Saturday, and they secured the spices sometime after that in order to make the trip to the tomb so early on Sunday morning. And the same women who were present at the cross came to the tomb, 
And I think it's accurate to state that the women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. The attitude of the disciples was that he was dead. And it's better to stay undercover until after all the excitement had died down and they were no longer in danger. Did they intend to go to the tomb? There's no evidence to support such an intention. None of them intended to visit that tomb. Now, it was very early at sunrise, and these women intended to anoint the body of Jesus with the spices they'd bought. And they were presented with the difficulty of getting into the tomb because of the stone at the door. Now, their difficulty was dissolved by the fact that the stone was rolled away. The body of Jesus was gone. There was a heavenly message with the first announcement of the resurrection. That the tomb was empty is a fact that's well attested and established. The evidence is such that it would be acceptable in a court of law. Listen now as I read. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. He saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. He was not there. That was obvious. Now notice verse 7, "...but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him, as he said unto you." Now will you notice that the fact of the empty tomb, and we need to put the four Gospels together. Back in Matthew, we went over that. We'll go over it again when we get to John's gospel, by the way. But all I want to do here is to quote the statement of Lord Lyndhurst, who was High Chancellor of Great Britain back in 1846, and he was also the High Steward of Cambridge, the highest honor that they give. And he made this statement. He says, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Now, the women here are told now to go and report. Verse 7, But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him as he said unto you. Now, the women are to report to the disciples. The angel was surely not waiting for some disciple to come by, as you can see because he sends a message to them. He'll meet them in Galilee as he promised. And John 21 gives that remarkable episode, which we're to look at later on in this study. Now, you can well imagine the amazement of these women. They were speechless. And this, frankly, doesn't seem to me to be an appropriate place for Mark to end his gospel. And they went out quickly, fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now, this part is the part that is not in the better manuscripts, yet we believe it belongs in the Word of God. Now, let me move rather hurriedly. 
Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd cast seven demons. Now, you see, Mark has made it clear to us he wasn't giving us the chronological order. What he's saying now is that this is the order. Mary Magdalene first. She went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. They did not believe Mary Magdalene at all. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. Now, Dr. Luke gives us that walk on the Emmaus Road. They went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the leaven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now, you see, we have Mark giving us more or less an order of the events after the resurrection. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. This has been a gospel of action. Now he's telling them to get into action. They are to go. And by the way, he's saying to us today that we should be men and women of action for God. What are we doing today to get the Word of God out? That's our business, friends. You ought to have some part in getting the Word of God out. Now, he says, "...he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned." And he doesn't say that if you're not baptized, you'll be damned. You notice that. That's not essential. I'm not going into details here. "...and these signs shall follow them that believe." In my name shall they cast out demons, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And if you want to accept any one of these signed gifts, then take them all, my brother. And I have a formaldehyde cocktail that I'll be glad to prepare for you if you think you could do it. May I say to you, these were sign gifts at the beginning, and it's important to see that. These signs shall follow them that believe. Now, the evidence today is he that doesn't have this doctrine, it's the Word of God today that's the great sign in this hour. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, sat on the right hand of God, they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. That was for the apostles, friends, because that's what we're dealing with here. And I've had to deal with this very quickly and actually so briefly. I wish even in a five-year course we could spend more time in many of these places. But we must move on. We go back to Leviticus, the Old Testament, next time. Be with us, friends. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.